Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. We're going to turn our lens a little bit and take a look at the work being done to close the access to justice gap. The A to J gap is one of the most serious issues facing our country. Of low-income Americans experiencing civil legal problems, the vast majority receive inadequate or no legal help. This gap is a result of overlapping issues facing the legal industry. Cost of law school, the complexity of our justice system, slow adoption of technology by lawyers in the courts, among others. Our guest today is David Stern, a legal industry pioneer who has spent the majority of his career addressing the justice gap. David is the executive director of Equal Justice Works, an organization whose mission is to mobilize passionate public service leaders. Under David's leadership, Equal Justice Works has grown to become the nation's largest facilitator of opportunities in public interest law. The organization has facilitated over 2,500 public interest fellowships with 85% of fellows remaining in public service. Listen in to today's conversation to hear how educational debt increased the justice gap and what Equal Justice Works has done to make it easier for students with debt to choose public service jobs. How a child of a professional muckraker went from law school to clerkship to a brief stint in practice now a chance encounter on the other side of the planet led him to Equal Justice Works. Why today's law students have such an appetite for public service and inspiring success stories of Equal Justice Works fellows. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. David, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Hi, Steve. Very nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. I'm joined today with David Stern of Equal Justice Works. We'll put in the show notes all of your accolades and plaudits. I won't spend all of our time talking about all the acknowledgement of the great things you've done. I think most of our listeners probably know Equal Justice Works, but for the few of them that don't, talk to us a little bit about the organization where you've spent your career, what it is and what its mission is. Well, thanks. Um, Equal Justice Works is mobilizing passionate public service leaders. We are the nation's largest facilitator of opportunities in public interest law. You know, there are millions of people who face injustice, evictions, domestic violence, disasters, elder abuse, lead contaminated drinking water, just to name a few, and they can't afford lawyers. So there are thousands of law students who want to do public interest work, but there is a scarcity of entry level opportunities. And recent law graduates often have mortgage sized debt that prevent them from taking relatively low paying public interest jobs. And this organization has created this extraordinary network of law schools, law students, legal services organizations, and supporters like big law firms, companies, foundations, individuals, to get more of these passionate law students into the field so they can work on these injustices. And we do this by creating and facilitating opportunities and making sure educational debt does not block lawyers from taking these relatively low-paying public interest jobs. That challenge has to have been getting greater over the years as cost of law schools go up. And quite frankly, the salaries that are enticing law students into private law firms have gone up. How have you sort of dealt with that challenge? 
Well, there are two things, Steve. First, you should know that the appetite among law students to go into public interest work is on the steep increase. A lot of people are motivated by the injustices that they see in the world, and they go to law school with purpose. They are not like the days when you and I went to law school, where you went not really sure what direction you were going to go. And by and large, when you were there, there was a very strong current steering you to big law. And today, it's quite different. Students are going into law school saying, I know why I'm here. I'm here to make a difference in the world. I want to change the world. The number one pursuit after Teach for America is law. So you have people who have had community service experience in high school, in college, and many times they've done Peace Corps or some service, AmeriCorps, before they even go to law school. So they're, they're going with a real clear mission and desire to make a difference. And so our organization is essentially a pipeline. It's taking those students who have those interests and even some who may not be sure why they're in law school and give them a taste of public service. And once they are bitten by that bug, they are very likely to incorporate that into their careers. But you are right. Educational debt in particular is an issue that that really concerns a lot of law students. How am I going to pay for this $70,000 tuition every year? And then I graduate with, you know, well over $100,000 in debt. What am I going to do? So we have helped since our founding. That has been a number one issue for us. And we help create loan repayment assistance programs in law schools. But the most significant accomplishment that we had was passing a law that allowed people to take public service jobs, not just lawyers, teachers, social workers, first responders. And they can take a public interest job and if they make payments, on-time payments for 10 years while in those jobs, they earn forgiveness of the remainder of their debt. So that is a breakthrough moment. Congress created that program in 2007. The problem is the administration of that program has been absolutely horrible. 98% of the people who apply for forgiveness have been denied. And so the result is a lot of people have lost faith in that program. Uh, recently, the secretary of the Department of Education has revised the program and made a promise that he would fix it for all those people who have been in that program for the past 10 years. Yeah, it's a great concept. And I speak from this personally because I have a daughter who currently is works for the Bail Project and was a public defender for a number of years. And she went to NYU, which was an expensive law school. And this program was part of what solidified her she went to law school just as you've described with a desire. She did. She just wanted to do public service. She didn't want to do commercial law. And this program you put in place was a big, big supporter for her in being able to do that and sure for thousands of others. So kudos, kudos on that. Well, thanks. I, I should mention that when we started, there were only a half dozen of these loan repayment assistance programs. And NYU, Harvard, Yale, the top law schools had these programs. But the vast majority of schools did not have any loan repayment assistance programs. And even when, and every year we would publish kind of a, a guide telling people what programs existed. And that was a market force that got a lot of law schools to add those programs. But the real game changer was when Congress took action and created this national program to enable thousands of people to take advantage of it. Then it didn't really depend on where you went to law school. Everybody could participate. Yeah, absolutely. I want to come back to Equal Justice Works and particularly the Fellows Program, because I think it's such a fabulous idea and thing. But let's let's go back into the Wayback Machine. You started 
in law school, just like the rest of us. But you, I've, I've read where you've said that you went to law school with a passion for public service that derives from your parents who were very active in social movements of the day. Is that right? That is true. Yeah, my, my dad was a professional muckraker. <laughs> uh, he wrote books criticizing the, uh, the tax system and how it favored the rich. He wrote a book about poverty called The Shame of a Nation. He also wrote a book about lawyers. He actually went to law school at 50 years old. He went for one year and then wrote this book criticizing the legal profession for not serving the vast majority of people. This was back in the 1970s. And he said, and I think Jimmy Carter had a line too that said 90% of the lawyers serve 10% of the people. Well, certainly if that was true then, it's even more true now. Absolutely. Lawyers are just not affordable for most people. So sure enough, I, I did go to law school with that public service spirit, having grown up in a family that really did care about these issues. I saw firsthand the difference that law could make on injustices that I cared about. And so, yeah, I went with purpose. Although you took a little detour, right, to a commercial firm to do a little landlord-tenant work. Tell us about the friendlies dispute, because I'm interested. People have moments that I've talked to that either reaffirm the path they want to be on or is these moments. It sounds like you had one with your mall dispute. You're so funny that you know that. Um, You've obviously done your homework. So right after I clerked, the judge who I clerked for said, David, you know, I know you want to do public interest work, but you have to learn how to practice law first. Who was the best lawyer that you saw this past year in, in my court? I said, well, this guy, Ben Rosenberg. He said, that's exactly who I was going to suggest. You got to go work for Ben and learn how to practice law before you go into public interest. So I did that. But again, I can't remember whether we represented Friendly's Ice Cream or the mall, but it was basically like you learn in property. If you miss the renewal date by one day, you're out of luck. And so in that case, the mall was evicting friendlies for not renewing on time. And it was just a fight about money. And I said, well, I have really no interest in this case, one way or the other, how it comes out. I don't really care about either one of these clients. And so I better do something else. I find that interesting. Also interesting is it sounds like you then took a trip around the world with your wife and you're walking down the street and you bump into Ralph Nader's number two guy. Is that, am I getting that story right? You're amazing. This is very impressive. Yes, indeed. John Richard uh, was walking down the street and he said, so David, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm looking. I'm not sure what I want to do next. He said, well, I've got the job for you. And by the time I got home, there was a call, a message on my voice machine that said from Kathleen Welch, who was then the executive director of this organization, saying that John had reached out to her and encouraged me to connect with her. And I did. And uh, sure enough, eventually she hired me to be the first director of the postgraduate fellowship program, which we were creating. And the organization at the time was called the National Association for Public Interest Law, NAPIL, a mouthful. Most people couldn't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) The growth of the organization has been amazing. Talk a little bit about that, because you had to have overcome tremendous obstacles and barriers. And I know it's it's largely the result of your passion and drive, but obviously it's a team effort. But talk a little bit about how the organization has grown and how you've managed to persevere. Well, you know what, Steve, I have to say, and and I get way too much credit for the growth. The truth is, it is a 
very large community of people who put their shoulder to the wheel. And each time, you know, this, and I'm such a big believer in networks and relationships. And each time we brought in somebody else who was influential and who cared about access to justice, and by the way, completely bipartisan, everybody who cared about these issues saw the power of this pipeline of creating opportunities for young lawyers to go and do public interest work. And so when I started at the organization, we had a Cypre award from a judge in Chicago to create a postgraduate fellowship program. And my job was to help design that program. So we started off and we assembled a board of directors. The judge said, listen, I I love your organization, but it's a group of law students and I need some grownups involved. So she helped to assemble this phenomenal group of people, Judge John Minor Wisdom from the Fifth Circuit, Jack Martin, who was the general counsel of Ford Motor Company, Greg Landis, who was then at McCutcheon Doyle, several other prominent lawyers, and Jack Curtin, who was the former uh, ABA president, and he was the chair of the board. And basically, this group was put together to try to build the organization or to give away money. But then after they saw that first crop of candidates for these fellowships, they were absolutely blown away. They said, who knew that there are people who want to do public interest work that are of at least the caliber we would hire in our law firms? So there were several people who, again, met all those elite criteria of qualifications that law firms would want. But I will say when we were doing our selection that first year, you put some of those candidates against some of the individuals who did not come from those elite institutions, but who had passion and commitment to solving a problem. I'll give you one example where, again, it was a toss-up between two candidates. There was a Vietnamese immigrant who wanted to create a community economic development program in Boston. And he was up against an NYU law student who had been teaching at Yale as a law student, a death penalty class, and had done super impressive things, had a 10-page letter from Tony Amsterdam, you know, this phenomenal capital defense professor. Uh, and so he had, you know, impeccable credentials, and he wanted to do a death penalty mitigation case. So those two were side by side. And in the end, we chose the Vietnamese student or fellow applicant. And a few years later, I was at a conference and I heard the CEO of a bank and managing partner of a law firm saying, the single best pro bono project that we've ever worked on is this project involving this community economic development program in Boston. We've rolled up our sleeves. We've helped this guy. And his name is Long Nguyen. He's the CEO of this community economic development program. And sure enough, that was our fellow. So it's a good story of how the choices we make, as difficult as they were, because literally we had hundreds of applicants, you could have really picked almost anyone in that batch. But choosing between those two, I think we made a really great choice in, in giving Long that opportunity. It's got to be incredibly gratifying to you as you look back to see the contribution you and the organization have made in big ways and small ways to people's success like that. That's fabulous. Well, the, the number that I always love to cite is that we now have 2,500 former fellows or alumni, and 85% of them are still full-time public interest lawyers. And to watch them percolate through the legal services and public interest community and rise into leadership positions is just incredibly gratifying. Right now, Emily Benfer is in the White House, and she's helping the eviction crisis. We've got former fellow who is um, now the head of the National Homelessness Law Center, another one who is often credited with the Time's Up movement. I mean, I really could go on and on about just how many former fellows have turned into national leaders. 
So the program started with this uh, really incredible board of esteemed lawyers and jurists and stuff. And you're a relatively young lawyer at that point. I know you clerked for a couple of years and practiced for a couple of years, traveled for a little bit of time. So you weren't 18, but you weren't 50 either. What was it like as a young lawyer dealing with such an incredibly impressive group of senior people? It had to be an incredibly interesting experience. It wasn't, Steve, I think that the biggest thing that I learned is that often, even though I was spending every day thinking about these issues, it was important for me not to express my opinion about a lot of these topics and to listen to others who had experience and wisdom. And rather than being the smart guy who, you know, almost smart aleck guy, you know, who could answer a question, <laughs> instead, just sit back and listen to the conversation and listen to the insights and wisdom of others. And that really did both increase their investment in the organization because they could see that we were listening and adhering to their advice. And also, and there was one person in particular who really took me under his wing. His name is Took Kroll, Eldon Kroll, if that name sounds familiar. Mm, it does ring a bell. He was the Kroll and Kroll and Mooring. Ah, that's why it rings a bell. And he he basically adopted me and this organization and really took me under his wing, literally went around the country with me, introduced me to various general counsel and big managing partners of big law firms, really made a huge difference to this organization. It does show the power of mentorship. It sure does. Um, and in fact, I'd say that I have been the beneficiary of many extraordinary lawyers who have chaired our board and who have helped kind of lead us to where we are today. You know, as I said in the beginning, I think I get way too much credit for the success of the organization. This is a community. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's one individual cannot make that much of a difference. But once you start mobilizing collective action by many, many, many people, you can make one hell of a difference. Right. Now, one of the, the hallmarks of Equal Justice Works is the Fellows Program. You've, you've touched on it and talked a little bit about it. I've had some my own experience with the program and walked away incredibly impressed with it. But it's this interesting collaboration between, in our case, big law firms and, and corporations. How do you facilitate that type of program, getting it off the ground and dealing with that collaborative process? Because that collaboration is key to the success of the program, I would think. Yeah, I would. The invention of the co-sponsored fellowship where law firms and companies come together and co-sponsor fellowship was absolutely one of the best inventions we've ever come up with. This happened actually during the 2008 time where law firms were cutting back on their charitable giving and we're very concerned about the price of these fellowships. And once we introduced the idea of partnering with one of their clients, there was a very sharp increase in appetite. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> <Among> law firms. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were very upfront about it um, in saying, look, this is a way of enhancing your relationship around something else that you could do together with your clients. And the clients, surprisingly, were really eager to do it. They thought it was a great way for them to have opportunities to engage in pro bono work and also have the benefit of a law firm that has that capacity more than many in-house law departments do. So it was really a good marriage. Both of them could share the cost instead of bearing it alone. And so the way our process works is we get these absolutely genius applications from roughly 400 law students, usually third year law students or people who are finishing clerkships. And they have these brilliant ideas. 
They put together a 10-page business plan. They propose to work with a specific organization that has agreed to host them. And then they come together with this package and we farm it out. We review those applications and send the very best based on the criteria of the law firm and the company and send the very best applications. They decide which ones to interview and they select. And that's also part of the magic of the program is instead of them just turning over the money and having us pick, by them choosing projects that are in the sweet spot of what they're interested in, it ensures real engagement. And I'll give you an example because I I happen to love this one. Cyfarth and United Airlines co-sponsor a fellowship, Charlie Isaacs, who uh, was featured at our annual dinner this year, our virtual dinner. And there's this great video where it describes the work that he's doing on behalf of people who are facing housing discrimination. They can't afford to get housing in Chicago. And also with the pandemic causing additional hardship and challenges and people not knowing what their rights are about um, whether it was the CDC moratorium or things like that. And Charlie was out there on the streets helping people know what their rights are and give them that foundation. You and I take for granted that we have a house and a roof over our heads. When that is fragile, everything else collapses. If you get evicted and you're homeless, suddenly you face all sorts of additional risks of poverty that will sink you down into a spot where you can't climb back up. You can lose your job, your family, your kids suffer. And it's just, it's a horrible situation. And if you've read Evicted, um, the book by Matthew Desmond, very popular book, you can see homelessness and evictions are not a symptom of poverty. They're actually a cause of poverty. Once you're in that cycle, it's very, very hard to find housing after you've been evicted. That's a great story. I was fortunate enough to be part of a selection process in Seifarth's first Equal Justice Works Fellow. And what, what struck me about it, I'm curious, I assume this experience is replicated, was the quality of the applications, which was made it incredibly hard to pick a candidate. How we wound up picking Andrew, I don't, I don't quite remember because there's so many great things. But the ideas that these young people have about an injustice they've seen or they've found, but the business plan behind it, how they're going to execute on it, to me, was the critical piece of it. And I'm sure you see that replicated over and over again. Steve, you know, it's, it is actually my favorite part. And the reason why this organization has been so successful is that most law firms and companies think to themselves, you know, what does a recent law graduate know? I mean, this, this person's not going to be able to make much of a difference. Heck, we take our new associates and we have to train them from the, the get-go. And then they meet the candidates who have this vision, passion, very concrete and practical idea about what they could do about an injustice. And Every year, people just come to me and they say, I can't believe the caliber of candidates. I couldn't figure out who to sponsor, given the strength of these candidates. Now, we we have to turn away six candidates for every one that's chosen. Mm. So it, it that's the most painful part of each year is seeing exceptional people who are turned away. So I'll give you one example, because we just had a board meeting this past Friday, and it was just, for me, a magical moment. We had a fellow who was sponsored by one of the general counsel who serves on our board, and she decided to sponsor fellowship by herself with her family and had her kids involved in picking. And one of the issues, you know, they one of the kids wanted to focus on voting rights. Another one was very concerned about criminal justice and prison conditions. And so there was a candidate who came in who was talking about prison gerrymandering. 
It's an issue where prisons are located in mostly rural white areas, but the people who reside there are often from urban areas. And so it disproportionately gives an advantage in the census to those rural white communities in counting what their representation would be. And it's especially unfair given that people generally are not there for 10 years. They're there for a much shorter period of time. And so they're not counted in where they actually live. So in any event, this woman is taking this issue on. And the difference that she made in the first year of her fellowship was so extraordinary. And her personal background being of Japanese descent and her grandfather having been interned in World War II. It just, I, you know, at the end of it, our board chair, Ivan Fong, who's the general counsel 3M, just said, hey, I'm speechless. This is the most extraordinary person and project. And the idea that that person would not have received a fellowship except for the generosity of this family is just, it's inspiring. I think it made people think there are so many fellows that are not going to fit into the narrow criteria of a law firm or company where somebody wants to have somebody working on direct legal services in their community. And then you see these other very compelling people and projects that have something bigger. And it really inspires individuals and families to say, well, we should do that too. Is that uh, a part of the plan to expand the fellows program? It is. So I have been, and we've seen this now increasing over the last few years, fellows who have worked on fees and fines. This is something where if you're on the margins and you rely on your salary in order to pay your rent and you're driving to work one day, and usually you have to drive quite a distance because you can only afford housing that's in a distant suburb, and you have a broken taillight or you speed and you get a ticket, and suddenly that ticket is going to cut into the cost of your rent and you can't afford to pay it. So you don't pay it. Well, the fee doubles and then your license gets suspended. Now you can't drive to work. You lose your job. It just creates this extraordinary cycle, even though you're really unable to afford to pay it. So there's been a whole movement in this country to try to address these fees and fines. I've given you one example. There are literally hundreds of examples of these fees that are disproportionately placed on low-income people that really causes desperate poverty. So we've had a bunch of individuals who've said, let's fund fellows working on that issue. And we've had fellows working again on voting rights. There was a project, boy, recent injustice that was documented in the New Yorker a week and a half ago. Migrant workers who are following after disasters and doing the cleanup, really nasty work. These buildings are destroyed. There's lots of mold. There's fiberglass, glass all over the ground. And these workers are hired, a lot of them immigrants, to go and clean up. And they go and they do this, and they often suffer horrible harm. And because they're immigrants, many times the contractors who hire them say, well, we're not going to pay you. We'll, we'll report you to ICE if you make a claim against us. So we have a fellow who's working at an organization called Resilience Force that was profiled in this New Yorker article, who's helping to just make sure that people get fair wages for the work that they do and not be mistreated, as was documented in that New Yorker piece. That's incredible. The program is really just an amazing program. Let's broaden the lens a little bit and talk about some of the challenges of the access to justice gap, though, because what Equal Justice Works is doing is amazing, but the gap is so much larger than any one organization has the ability to fill. And we've got some states experimenting with alternatives, Arizona, Utah, Minnesota, California, doing a study. What's your view on the ability to use other professionals to provide some form of legal services, whether they're legal paraprofessionals or they're essentially of a nurse practitioner, which is the experimentation going on in some of the states. Have you formed a view on what that potential is? 
I have. I've, I've studied it quite a bit. And I think that these legal navigators are essential. If you just think about, and all you have to do is go into any courthouse in the country and you'll see the disparity between landlords who are represented in landlord-tenant court, 95%, less than 3% of tenants have lawyers. In consumer debt cases, it's even worse. And you see people and they basically throw up their hands. They give up. They never really have a fighting chance. And many times just getting information, know your rights information, knowing which court to go to, which papers to file, helping people simplify the language. There's Mark Chandler, who's the former general counsel of Cisco, is working at Stanford Law School to simplify the forms so that they're in English instead of complicated legalese. Jim Sandman, the former president of the Legal Services Corporation, is working at the University of Pennsylvania Law School on a similar project to just try to think about more ways of providing access to pro se tenants to make it easy for them to do it. But mostly, if we can get paraprofessionals college graduates to get in the game and to be able to help people hold their hands, that could make a really big difference. But I think the point that you're making is for a country that has justice as one of its core values, David Rubenstein points out, it's the first value articulated in the Constitution. And yet we fall so far short of where we should be. The crisis that is keeping me up at night is the eviction crisis. People lost their jobs during the pandemic. They can't afford their rent. They're in major arrears. There's been a lot of money appropriated by Congress, and people don't know how to access that money. There are some genius law students and lawyers who are out there coming up with solutions, diversion programs, things that stop the eviction from going through. One law student is in Denver, Colorado, and he helped to create a revolving loan fund. So you put in your application for the emergency rental assistance. Well, it takes time for that to pass. Well, the landlord's expecting your money right now. And if you don't give it, he's going to take you to court. So he's created a revolving fund where he pays the money out of the revolving fund to the landlord and then gets reimbursed from the emergency rental assistance down the road. And that, again, that's a law student who created that program. And there are law students who are literally helping people fill out those forms to get that emergency rental assistance. So when you see the entrepreneurship of today's law students, you can't help but be inspired by their creativity, tenacity, and passion to address these injustices. What role does technology play in some of this, David? You have to have been working on that at the Equal Justice Works and seeing other organizations doing it, because we we talk a lot about technology in big law and in private law firms, but what role does it play in the access to justice challenge? Well, there are two things I want to say about this. First, there are some really smart young people who are coming up with apps to solve some of the recurring problems. So, you know, you mentioned Andrew Hemmer earlier. He worked on expungement issues, and that is one where you do need a lawyer at some point in that process in order to get your record expunged. But there are a lot of apps that are now coming up, and they obviously have to be state-specific because the laws vary by state, that allow people to literally put in the information into the app and then ultimately gets loaded up to a lawyer who's able to very efficiently go and get that record expunged. So there's one example. But I will say, and I'm sure you're aware of this, LegalZoom, all these big tech companies are coming in there. They say the single largest gap in revenue, potential revenue money that they could earn is in the provision of legal services, that there are so few lawyers serving the vast majority of people who have legal problems that creating these apps where you can get 
services for a much lower fee than if you actually hire a lawyer is a huge market. And there are billions and billions of dollars being invested into some of this new technology. Now, my hope is that some of that will be available to people even at more of a discount than they're offering it to the average person. But I don't know about you, Steve, but I talk to just common people who say they can't afford a lawyer. And the fact that it's out of reach for people of middle to even high income status is a serious problem that we've got to address. And as I said in the beginning, the fact that we have this appetite among law students who really want to do the service. I'm I'm going to give you one number that, again, I think will impress you. But so when I was in law school, I never considered working in a rural legal aid program. Did you? No, I did not. Yeah. So we created a program called the Rural Summer Legal Corps, and we pick 35 placements, 35 organizations where fellows can work, summer interns can work, and we publish that to law schools. We got 460 applications wow. for 35 spots. Yeah. Wow. Which that should tell you something about the appetite. And it really does respond to the first question you asked about the students wanting to go to big law. The reality is, is that they're really interested in having meaningful experiences. And especially as a first or second year law student, where they can roll up their sleeves and actually work on real matters that make a difference in real people's lives. We talked a little bit about the pandemic and its impact on society, evictions, et cetera. But how has Equal Justice Works managed to operate through the pandemic? You've had to have shifted your focus to being virtual, I presume, or as opposed to in person. Has it impeded your ability to continue to grow the organization or have you adapted and continued your path? Yeah, there there are two interesting stories. We did have to go remote, which was not my preference. And as I said earlier, relationships are really important to me. And so I missed going around and seeing all of our supporters and drumming up more business. But two great things happened. One is we pivoted a lot of our events into virtual events. So we have a conference and career fair every year for law students. Normally, we get about 1,200 law students who come from around the country to Washington, D.C. to interview for public interest jobs, Here a keynote, often we get a Supreme Court justice to come and talk with them, and then a lot of panels on different subjects. Well, instead of our 1,200, when we went virtual, we had more than 3,000 students who came. Wow. Because you don't have the expense of having to go to Washington, D.C. If you're in California or the Midwest, instead of having to fly to, to Washington, now suddenly it's a click away. So that is an example of a pivot that really provided a new way of doing business that I think is actually beneficial and something that we will probably continue. At the very least, a hybrid. There is value in people coming together and feeling that they're part of a community, but there's also value in people being able to access jobs, even if they can't afford to fly to Washington, D.C. The second quick example was after George Floyd's murder, there was a big appetite among law firms and companies to deploy lawyers to work on racial justice issues. And so we had a pretty significant bump in the middle of the pandemic when we were really thinking we were on a downward slope, where suddenly a lot of folks reached out and said, well, we know you, you're a trusted partner. Uh, Have you got any fellowship candidates that are addressing these issues? The vast majority of them, of the applicants, have a racial justice component. They often don't necessarily put that specifically in their application as as the label. But we reopened our competition. We went back. We had already closed it. We had said no to a lot of people. And we went back and contacted folks who still had not landed their dream jobs and put them back in the mix. And uh, several companies and law firms sponsored those fellows. Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. What's next for Equal Justice Works? Continuing the same path or are there new programs in the works? 
first of all, that is the reason why I've been there so long is right. It's always changing, always evolving, lots of new opportunities. And I truly, I, I love that about the organization. So one part that we have not talked about that is really very cool and something that most people don't know us for. So the program that we've been talking about so far are these design your own fellowship programs where people come up with their business plan and they come and present it. There's another model, which is around creating a team of lawyers to go and work on an issue. So I'll give you an example. We've got several of these. These are mostly government funded. We actually had AmeriCorps funding for a lot of years. But right now we have a program funded by the Department of Justice focused on elder abuse. And we've got 22 lawyers who are placed in rural communities who are focused on the consumer scams, the family neglect, nursing homes. There's just so many abuses. And even though the need is far greater than those 22 lawyers can fulfill, the impact is dramatic for those clients that they do serve. So that's one example. The other one that is my favorite at the moment because of my passion around addressing the eviction crisis is a program we launched with private funding in Richmond, Virginia. Six lawyers and two community organizers. We picked Richmond because it was the third highest eviction rate in the country. We deployed those lawyers and community organizers, and in two years, they completely changed the landscape of evictions taking place in Richmond. By educating the judges so they would see the patterns and practices of landlords who were really abusing their tenants, by making sure that they had representation day in, day out, the numbers dropped dramatically. And they even got a moratorium before the CDC moratorium about evictions from one of the public housing authorities. That program, because of its impact, is replicable. And right now we're going to grow it throughout Virginia, hopefully in Maryland and in South Carolina. And if we're successful there, hopefully we can do this in in other parts of the country as well. And then finally, I'll give you one last thing real quickly. So there's a new administration in town. I noticed. Not so new anymore. (laughs) But they, they have prioritized several issues where lawyers could be really make a big difference. So disaster resilience, disaster recovery is one area. Another one is around veterans, homeless veterans who are suffering at a very high rate of suicide. We had a program funded through AmeriCorps called the Veterans Legal Corps. And the VA loved that program. They wanted us to continue it, but they couldn't give us any money to do it. Well, in January of this year, Congress passed legislation that allows the VA to fund the Veterans Legal Corps, specifically actually puts that in the language of the legislation. (laughs) Congress actually passed something. Oh, my goodness. They did. And it says the VA can support civil legal aid, including the Veterans Legal Corps, which was our program. So we've had conversations with the VA. They're very interested in bringing this program back. They're fast tracking it in terms of the regulations that they need to pass. But I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to put that program back into place because Lord knows having lawyers on the side of veterans, whether it's dishonorable discharge upgrades or helping them on getting access to health care, employment benefits, all these issues that veterans face, which, by the way, are if you look at the list of issues that veterans complain about, five of the top 10 are law related issues. And it's never one that's been prioritized or funded. What's so inspiring about the stories you tell, you've lived it for 30 years, is we live in a profession that is rightly and often criticized for all of the failings that many of our lawyers have. But to hear the positive impact lawyers can have in American society is really, and particularly the young people that you've, you've worked with, is really amazing. What's next for you? I know you're, you're stepping down as executive director here at the beginning of the year. 
I can't imagine you're just going to go off to your cabin and read a book. What's next? <laughs> well, I uh, my first a- ambition actually is to take some time off to reflect. I've been approached by several folks to join boards and do other activities. And I've just said, I just need a little me time. I've been doing this 30 years as anyone who knows me and especially my kids will tell you I work all the time and I love my work. So I'm I'm not complaining about it. I just I think it's fantastic. But I know too many people who stay in organizations too long. And so they don't leave at the top of the game and the organizations start to decline. I don't want to be that leader. I also know people who stay too long and they're too old to enjoy their retirement. I don't want to be that leader either. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I, I am choosing to go out when I still have all my health and a lot of energy, go on some adventures and probably do that for a year. And then I'll get back in the game in some way because I care so much about these issues. Well, you've had such an amazing impact on society and the profession. Hopefully after your, your hiatus, you'll continue to devote your talents to making everything better. I know we've run out of time. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been, David, to talk to you today and sharing your career and the work you've been doing. It's, it's an inspiration to me and to our listeners. Thank you for your time. Well, Steve, thank you. And as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this work and I appreciate having an opportunity to talk with you about it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.